Hey everyone, welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. As always, my focus is on exploring the intersection of technology and business by having conversations with the most forward-thinking leaders. Throughout my career, I've covered everything from massive parallel processing to advanced robotics, but what truly inspires me are the stories of innovation and transformation. In this season, we'll explore technologies like flexible applications, more capable devices, and advanced networking like 5G that are helping business leaders act on their big ideas quickly and unlock mission-critical outcomes. What's become clear to us after three seasons is that we can't change tomorrow by deploying solutions of the past. So get ready to be inspired and learn from the best. Today on The Restless Ones, we have two phenomenal guests, each of whom has a background in education. Dr. Amy Novak is the president of St. Ambrose University and has worked in education for more than two decades. Dr. Keisha King is the senior national education administrator at T-Mobile for Education. They both have dedicated their careers to furthering the education of students, addressing social challenges for the betterment of communities, and preparing people to be productive, successful members of the workforce of tomorrow. It only takes a moment of reflection to get a hint of the challenges educators face in today's environment. But with the speed of technological innovation and how it impacts everything from how we interact with one another to how we get work done, meeting that goal is a never-ending challenge. I sat down with Dr. Novak and Dr. King to get a better understanding of technology's role in facilitating education. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to learn more about my guests. Dr. Novak and Dr. King, welcome to The Restless Ones. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Both of my parents were educators. They're both retired now. But my father taught college-level English. My mother taught elementary-level everything. So I have been deeply exposed to the world of education and seen both as a student and just in my family some of the challenges that my parents were facing every day. So, Dr. Novak, I'd love to start with you. Can you talk a bit about Where in your life were you when you decided to really pursue a career in education? Thanks so much for the question and just the opportunity to be in conversation and dialogue with all of you today. I had a rather circuitous route to the work in higher education, but I think when I look back and reflect on how I got here, I spent time in corporate settings for the first 10 years of my career. Also, I am a mom to eight, and as such, The reality was each of those young people in my life were learning and engaging in learning, and it's something that both my husband and I had a deep passion for. A series of family circumstances led us back to a situation where I came back to my hometown, and my husband was medically retired from the military, and I thought, what am I going to do in my hometown? And there happened to be a college there, and I thought, you know, I might have some skills that could be valuable. And so I applied for a position as a three-quarter time grant writer, of all things. And 21 years later, I have had a just exceptional experience to be in a career field where every day I get an opportunity to interact with students and really be part of a transformative 
life experience for them, walking alongside students as they go from this place of what am I going to do with my life to now being able to graduate and really see a pathway for them into careers, but also just into better community leaders, strengthened human beings. And so it's a privilege to work in that space. And to that end, Dr. King, I understand you also had a background in education before you transitioned over to T-Mobile for education. So please tell us a bit about your journey. I have been an educator, seems like my entire life. But when I was younger, I never wanted to be a teacher because I didn't want to make students have to sit still. I grew up in Phoenix, and so I was working for uh, the city of Phoenix and really excited about that. And then I was in Arizona State University's Upward Bound program. And that program, it was for underrepresented first-generation college graduates to go to these major universities and have support and just this really great experience on college campuses prior to enrolling. So I graduated from high school and went directly into Arizona State University at 16 years old. And I started working for the Upward Bound program as a freshman in college. And through that program, I was mentoring other students just like me. And it made me really understand that the teaching and learning process is so very dynamic, right? Especially when in that program, you go from mentorship to teaching, to tutoring, to residential assistance, to all these other things, to like meal hall assistance. And when I graduated, I started teaching at a school district of 70,000 students. And from there, I went into building virtual learning programs and expanding opportunities and then became the director of online learning. I led curriculum and technology integration and started really honing in on how do you put devices into the hands of students? But then beyond that, how do you create content that allows them to have opportunities to graduate, opportunities to enter into post-secondary education, opportunities to really be exposed to new careers that maybe they wouldn't have access to. And so really got excited about that work because I absolutely loved working with kiddos. Fantastic. I'm curious, Dr. Novak, if you can talk a little bit about some of the truly disruptive or influential changes in technology that you've witnessed over the last decade and how those are having an impact in what you do? Great question. And I want to just go back a couple of steps first and say that one of the things that we've been doing, and I think I want to provide this context for this conversation, is that we have been hosting an innovation summit. Mm -hmm. And the rationale for that was what we were recognizing is that sometimes in higher ed, we tend to do things in a vacuum, or we sort of say, this is what the student needs, and we know that this is what the student needs because this is what we like to teach. And I'm not sure that's the framework that we want to approach this work by. What we really need to say is, what is it that our business and industry partners are telling us about our graduates? What might be the strengths? What might be the deficits? And then how do we bridge the types of experiences we create to ensure that when they enter the workforce, they are really relevantly prepared for the work they're doing? One of the things we talked about at this year's summit was the development of a growth mindset. Sometimes we think it's all about the technology. What it is really about is how do we develop a mindset of being continually curious 
continually willing to learn. And so we need to do that both among our faculty and our staff in the university community as much as we need to do that with our students. And I hope business and industry sees the need to keep nurturing that, supporting that, incentivizing that mindset in their workplaces. So when I look back at the way that we've sort of seen the evolution of technology, I think we had a major leap when we had the invention of the iPhone because we were carrying frankly, more technology on our phone than we had on the first manned space flight. And that was probably a really notable disruptor. And as all of that was happening, what I have found particularly fascinating is if you talk to cognitive learning scientists, they'll tell you our human brain was also changing and how we were reacting and responding to the content we accessed was changing how we interact we're continuing to evolve. So as we entered the second decade of the 20th century, when we're sitting there in 2010, 2011, 2012, and we're really seeing the discussion around MOOCs, you know, massively open classes that people can now access education, all of these were ways of us trying to figure it out. And, you know, people say to me, were they valuable? I'm like, absolutely, because we just got a little bit better about understanding how we could open doors of access, how we could make education more affordable, how we could, in many respects, break down the digital divide, but perhaps most importantly, how we could strengthen student learning. And so it's okay to have thousands of pages of content, but if we don't really understand what that means and how to use it and how to manipulate it or how to be able to synthesize it or analyze it, it's really not that particularly relevant. What has happened as a result of the evolution of technology, I think, are two major things. One is it's forced higher education to ask itself, how do we teach and how does learning best occur? And how do we use technology to enhance that? And two, I think it's also opened the door to access and affordability when used appropriately. And what I mean by that is we are no longer place-bound in education. We can actually broaden that and ensure that somebody anywhere in the country or the world can have access to education. We are also no longer bound to a model that says the faculty is the only person who has knowledge. Now we actually have what I would call interstate of knowledge in which everyone in the room can be contributing in a way that I think is extraordinarily powerful. So we launched our Nanonego Online School of Nursing. We've had a long history of health science education and on-ground nursing at this institution going back 70 years. What we decided, though, is that in order to meet the needs of rural America, where people are, in fact, place-bound in education deserts where they don't have the privilege or the access to drive four hours to a campus or three hours to a campus and be able to somehow get to a course at 9 a.m. and then another one at 11 a.m. and then another one at 3 that doesn't really allow them to keep working alongside their learning, we said that model is not going to meet the needs of many Americans who haven't completed a degree or who simply want to be upskilled or reskilled or who are simply place-bound and need an opportunity for economic 
social, and I would argue spiritual mobility. And so what technology has really allowed us to do is open doors that I think are really exciting. And now we can explore ways to do clinical simulation using virtual and augmented reality. We can rethink all of the assumptions we had about having to be in a clinic setting or in a hospital to learn this content. That's not to say we're going away from having skills checkoffs and things like that where students need to demonstrate that. But boy, we can supplement their learning with a whole lot of tools right now in the technology sphere that I think have the power to unleash learning for people who've been place bound for many, many years. It is phenomenal. And to that end, Dr. King, I wanted to talk to you about how connectivity has really opened up this capacity for reaching people who otherwise would have these struggles, where they wouldn't have the opportunity to pursue this sort of education because of where they are. I mean, the biggest concern we've seen across the country are these just broadband deserts, places where, especially in rural America, where there's so many companies that just don't want to make the investment because they're concerned with the return on investment, mm-hmm. right? There's not enough people there. And so we don't want to make an investment in providing these services. Well, I mean, the access is critical and it's really priceless in making sure that we do make these investments. So that's where I'm just so proud of the work that T-Mobile has done and, and making sure that across rural America, we have these really strong commitments and making billions of dollars in investments in the network and growing out what 5G looks like across rural America. And I think we're really going to be dependent on this 5G infrastructure growing across rural America to make sure that we're driving these advancements. Specific to what Dr. Novak said, I think for healthcare during the pandemic, healthcare consultations and telemedicine has never been more prevalent, right? How we're training our medical staff, how we're preparing them whether it's using AR goggles or AR VR driven healthcare models or practices, it requires high bandwidth. It requires fast communication. It requires low latency. And all of that means that 5G has a very meaningful influence on how we're providing these services to the folks who are going to need them the most. And you mentioned just that digital divide piece. T-Mobile has a $10.7 billion commitment to bridge the digital divide, and that's Project 10 Million. And what I love about Project 10 Million is that it's available to every student that qualifies for the National School Lunch Program across the country, every student household. It provides a free hotspot and 100 gigs of internet access per year for five years for every single student household that qualifies. That is really changing the landscape of how we see access. Now, does that mean that we don't need to go that extra mile? Absolutely, we do. And so when we think about fixed wireless access, when we think about the emergency connectivity fund and all of the other things in place to make sure that we're driving the access, that piece is gonna be critical as well. One thing that I wanted to talk about with you, Dr. Novak, I was fascinated to learn about the sort of test run with mixed reality and how that could play a role in education moving forward. Obviously, connectivity is at the very foundation to make that technology possible. But beyond that, what is the utility of mixed reality in your eyes? What opportunities does it present? When we think about the multiverse and how we do this, right, Mm -hmm. I think it's untapped in terms of what it will mean for higher ed. 
I want to be really clear here. We're just at the front end of this conversation. And what I mean by that is there hasn't been a lot of content developed for higher ed in this space. We have a huge investment that will need to be made in what I call the faculty of the future. In other words, equipping people for this sort of learning and work and understanding, is it working? And how does it best work? We have to be equipped with partners like T-Mobile, Qualcomm, others who are walking alongside us and asking the critical questions around what are we learning about the technological interface Where does it work? Where doesn't it work? Where are the limitations? I called it a pilot of the willing. In higher ed, sometimes saying to someone, you have to do this is kind of the kiss of death. So the strategy for me is, who wants to give this a shot? We had all our faculty go through a micro-credential in which they spent about 15 hours really learning about the tools, exploring it, understanding their capacity. And then we delved into about five different disciplinary areas, engineering, biology, nursing, history, art, philosophy, and really just said, let's see what we can learn. And so my request of those faculty was to see if we could integrate it into maybe five or six lessons within their content of a semester. And then we would meet weekly and just sort of discern what was working, what was not working. We got back together with some of the programmers and said, time out. We can't do this in this classroom because we've got bandwidth issues or we have students who weren't sure how to use the technology. So we ran into a lot of opportunities for what I would say learning. But we also discovered that when students are in this engaged space, when they've got a set of goggles on, you can't multitask. You can't be on your phone and your laptop and your other device. You're just immersed in the learning. And thus, the outcomes for how they retained and engaged in the content was so much more robust. So I believe there is a strong future in this multiverse where we have this integration of both virtual and augmented reality. And I think it's only going to continue to evolve. What's really critical is that we have industry partners working right alongside faculty and the people trying to implement this work. And in so doing, we don't do this work in a vacuum because I've seen a lot of technology in the past that's been designed for higher ed without any higher ed expertise around the table. And the result of which is we don't use it. And so what's so exciting about the collaboration we have with Victory XR, with T-Mobile, with Qualcomm in some of these conversations is we're all around the table. We're all listening to one another. We're all understanding the limitations as well as our aspirations. And I think that makes this a really powerful pilot for really understanding where this technology can go. And just to piggyback off of that, this is why it's been so important for T-Mobile to bring in these industry experts as well. Even working alongside Dr. Novak, we've taken the opportunity to bring in the former CIO of Penn State University, Michael Kubik. We've brought in Dr. Ann Clancy, the former vice provost for Chicago Community Colleges. This is not something that you can come in and be prescriptive about. I think research and development is also a really key piece of this work. I would concur. I think this is a a really big opportunity for higher education and, again, working alongside business partners to really explore where can this go and how we go about doing that matters. And you early on, Dr. King, mentioned who we put in the room matters so that the content we're developing 
we can ensure is representative of the real diversity that exists in our society today. And we honor that lens of our diversity as a country and as a world in the content we create and ensure access as well through that process. So we don't want to have all of one type of person or one way of thinking influencing how we create content, or I think we will really have missed our opportunity. So higher ed needs to make sure it's investing and doing the research and development work that is inclusive of a lot of different voices, people from rural areas, people from urban areas, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different racial backgrounds, people of different disciplinary backgrounds, right? So that we understand how to maximize the potential of this in a manner that is inclusive of voices and understandings of the human condition. So in something like engineering, we can create a virtual or augmented, we've got a sort of multiverse welding laboratory, okay? That doesn't feel as perhaps deeply personal. But when we take people into Plato's cave or when we explore history or when we dive into theological context using these tools, it matters if we want to go into depth and have these tools really be meaningful pedagogies to engage students in learning, it's much more than a tactical action like a welding lab. It is a way of thinking. It is a way of learning. And we must have voices around the table creating that. So our R&D work needs to be as inclusive as possible. And so I'm hopeful that as we begin to make strategic investments in higher ed, in the future of faculty, that we're really mindful about who we bring around the table for those conversations. And that is the power of private-public partnership. I could not agree more. Learning those tools to do good, responsible research where you actually are able to look at the full chain of where information came from and how it's been shaped along its way. To me, that's absolutely critical to being able to judge whether or not the information you're being presented is reliable or not reliable. And clearly, if we're to have technology bring this immersive experience to students, we want to be certain that that immersive experience reflects that same level of accountability and that same chain of a stewardship Dr. Novak, we've talked a lot about the different technologies you saw over your career in education. From a leadership perspective, I'm curious what your view is on generative AI in general and its role in education in particular. Sure. So as soon as ChatGPT launched, I had an account that day because I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and I have, frankly, I've been reading about generative AI for some time. And so it wasn't shocking that it was coming, but I think I was impressed by, I mean, my husband and I both have advanced degrees and I'm sitting at home and I'm like, give it the most difficult question and we're trying to mess with it to see if we can outsmart it. So immediately, like the next week, I have sort of these town hall type meetings with our faculty and I said to them, friends, it's out of the box. You can't say we're going to come up with some device to stop this or we're going to be able to outsmart ChatGPT from St. Ambrose University. I mean, that's not going to happen. So the real question is, how do we begin to think differently about how we leverage it, use it and ask, can we leverage it in such a way that the way we create assignments or the way we create learning opportunities, which I like to use that phrase even better than assignments, but learning opportunities might be to say, 
let's put this question into chat GPT or into some sort of generative AI, large language model. Let's see what's generated. And then let's ask those questions about reliability and validity. And can we ask ourselves to then connect disparate pieces of information that isn't real capable of being done through generative AI. And so we've begun a pretty robust effort to equip our faculty for how to do this work differently going forward. Because there are things about generative AI that can be really powerful and things that can be used, I think, in really productive ways, just like the scientific calculator. On the other hand, there are things that it generates that are clearly inaccurate or rampant with bias or not a reflection of what I'd say, good moral judgment or ethics. And so this then affords us the opportunity to really use it as a teaching tool to ask critical questions around it. And so I think we have to begin to equip both our students and our faculty and staff differently for the work that lies ahead. I'm not scared of it. I think it can be powerful. It's just that, again, we're evolving rapidly And it is shifting quickly the landscape of how we do the work in higher ed. And so as a leader, I feel really obligated to be ensuring our faculty are as equipped as possible to think differently about how teaching and learning happens in this environment. And we know that there are companies that are looking to use chat GPT in their work in various capacities. So students should get at least some exposure, since that is definitely going to be a component in the workforce in the future. So I really appreciate your answer. Before I could let my guests go, I needed to ask a couple more questions. Dr. King, I'd love to start with you. Our show is called The Restless Ones. What do you think of when you hear the phrase restless ones? When I hear the phrase restless ones, I think of a never-ending journey, growing out the love of something and watching that manifest into something that we use in our everyday life, and then watching that transform into something that changes the way that we interact with the people that we love and the environments that we love, and then watching that then transform into how we see our future and how we see our potential to grow and learn and flourish. And so when I think about restlessness, to me, it is really truly a trajectory of an idea and going into a potential future of something that can really only be imagined. And that is really exciting to me. That's an excellent answer. Dr. Novak, I have a different question for you, which is what advice would you give to business leaders who have an opportunity to partner with the public sector, specifically the education sector? I think it's just being willing to be co-creators and really explore what is the potential when collectively we come together to address complex problems, whether it's labor force, whether it's upskilling, reskilling, strengthening our communities. We're better together. And I always tell people, when something good happens, all boats rise. This is no longer an either-or conversation. We collectively need to start to co-create our future, and we do that best in partnership. When I think about restlessness, I think about creativity. And I think when we talk about the future, the possibilities are really endless if we're collaborating to make that a reality. What a fantastic, optimistic note to end on. Yes, chills are throughout the rooms. 
Dr. Novak, Dr. King, thank you so much for joining us for The Restless Ones. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you again to Dr. Amy Novak, president of St. Ambrose University, and Dr. King, senior national education administrator at T-Mobile for Education. I learned a lot during the course of this conversation, and I think the lessons learned in the education sector and the desire to collaborate with businesses to forge the best path forward to integrate innovation effectively in higher learning actually have applicability beyond education itself. I think it's clear that businesses will be making greater use of technologies from mixed reality to AI in the future. And business leaders need to learn the right questions to ask in order to develop tools that add real value. We all know that we should focus on the things that will solve the problems we face today and the ones we'll face tomorrow, and not just embrace every technology that comes along. But to achieve real success requires more than a plug-and-play mentality. Partnering with companies to craft the right solution is absolutely critical. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Amy Novak and Dr. Keisha King. Make sure to check out future episodes where I'll sit down with other thought leaders to learn how they approach innovation and the challenges associated with it, and take a look at our past episodes as well. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Strickland.